Psalm 36, beginning with verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the rivers of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. Nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we call on you this morning, Lord, that you may teach us from your word. We confess, O Lord, that our hearts are sluggish. Our eyes are very dim to see things clearly. Our ears are sometimes stopped. O Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts and teach us, O Lord, from your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. If you had a dollar for every time someone said, what's this world coming to? I suppose you'd probably be pretty wealthy. Uh, if you had one dollar for every time somebody said, what is this world coming to? And these kind of sentiments are often expressed as uh, we see the deterioration of culture around us. Uh, it's, it's a no-brainer that our culture is on a steep downhill slide. But there's something uh, very interesting about that that I want to share this morning. And it's that, you know, every generation has said these kinds of things, not just ours. If you read the writings of Luther and Calvin, they, they express similar sentiments of these days, um, these times that they lived in. And if you read the writings of faithful pastors through the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s, guess what they say as well? They say the same thing. Every generation has looked upon its culture and said, where is, where, what is this world coming to? Where, where is all of this where is all of this headed? Well, the fact is culture is always in a deep downhill slide. That's always where it is. And, you know, as believers in Christ, we don't need to wonder where this is headed. We know where this is headed. And in the psalm that we come to this morning, we see the first four verses of this psalm actually are devoted to uh, really uh, looking at the culture uh, around them. The psalmist, if you will, is looking at the world uh, if you will, and he's making observations. If, um, if we wanted to 
uh, put the first four verses under a heading, I suppose we might be able to put it under this heading, uh, the frightening way of this world. Uh, the frightening way of this world. And one of the most frightening things about the frightening way of the world is that it's not frightening. It's just not frightening. Um, it's pursued as if that's the best course of happiness. Um, let's let the psalm explain this. If we look at verse 1, we see the words, uh, transgression speaks to the wicked. Uh, deep in his heart, there's no fear of God before his eyes. If we have several different translations open here this morning, you'll notice there's a little bit of diversity with verse 1. And the reason for that is that uh, the Hebrew in verse 1 is very obscure. Um, so you're going to find a little bit of diversity here. But there's one thing that's very plain and very clear, is that in the eyes of the world, uh, there is no fear of God. There's simply no fear of God. People are doing what they want to do. Um, we're functioning as if God can't see, uh, as if he can't hear, uh, as if there's never going to be a day where we're going to have to give an account for every thought, word, and deed. Uh, this part is very clear as the psalmist looks around and makes these observations. And this has been true of every generation, not just our own. We look at verse 2. Verse 2 is quite insightful. I'd like to kind of pull off along the side of the road in verse 2 and like to hang out there for just a little bit if we could. Uh, it's, it's so in, insightful. In the ESV it reads, For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. For he flatters himself in his own eyes. The uh, 19th century pastor and uh, commentator Albert Barnes speaks very powerfully on this verse. He writes, quote, uh, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. He's quoting verse 2. He's speaking to verse 2 of Psalm 36. And here are his observations. Quote, he puts such an exalted estimate on himself. He so overrates himself and his own ability in judging of what is right and proper that he is allowed to pursue a course which ultimately makes his conduct odious. Uh, uh, that's an old word for disgusting. Uh, the result is so apparent and so abominable that no one can doubt what he is. The foundation or the basis of all of this is an overweening confidence in himself, in his own importance, in his own judgment, in his own ability to direct his course regardless of God. And the result is such a development of character that it cannot be regarded as hateful or odious. End of quote. And I share this quote with you because I find it so interesting that these things were written, at least to the best of my knowledge, this was written in 1834. And as we think about the course of American history uh, from 1834 onward, and we think of the character that's being developed in our nation, I think it's spot on. There's a lot of self-flattery going on. In the name of being right or wrong in our own eyes, look what we're becoming. Look what we're becoming. The world flatters itself constantly that they're at the center of the universe. We're the measure of all things. The world revolves around us. 
that we have these unlimited abilities that we can direct our lives in any which way we want, that we can do simply whatever we please. I have another quote for you. This one's actually lengthy. I normally don't like to share quotes so lengthy in sermons. Um, but this one is so good that I'm toying with the idea of making a pamphlet out of it. And it's a quote from Jonathan Edwards uh, when he preached on uh, these verses. Listen to what he said in regards to the self-flattery or the one who flatters himself. He has eight observations here. The first one, he says, some flatter themselves with a secret hope that there's no such thing as another world. In other words, there are people out there who flatter themselves that, that this is it, that what we see is the sum total of it all. Uh, there isn't another world beyond the, the grave. There's, an, there's, not an, there's not another world that we're going to step into. In the back of our minds, we might be hanging on to that, but practically speaking, in terms of how we conduct ourselves and the day-to-day -day operations, we act as if that's not the case at all. And we flatter ourselves that it isn't so. His second observation is, some flatter themselves that death is a great way off, and they shall hereafter have much opportunity to seek salvation. In other words... What Edwards is saying is some, this is probably more the case with younger individuals, that, you know, uh, listen, you know, um, we got our whole lives ahead of us. We don't need to be getting on about this salvation today. We can do it again. Uh, we can get on about that later in life. Uh, I can resonate with this one because I can remember as a teenager sitting in church and thinking exactly that. I can remember sitting in church and seeing some senior citizens in church who are the very final chapters of their life. And I've been thinking, man, when I'm their age, I'm going to get serious about this. They have my whole life in front of me. This is very common. I, 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 I think it's very common. Thirdly, some flatter themselves that they lead moral and orderly lives and therefore think they shall not be damned. Uh, yes, he used the word damned. He used it quite a bit, actually. Uh, back in the 1700s, we, we think that that's not a good word to use anymore, and that's another one of those things where I think we, uh, we think we know what's best and what's proper. The fact of the matter is, if we if we depart from this life, apart from Jesus Christ, it's not looking very good. In fact, it's looking very bad, uh, and it is indeed a reality. And um, there are many people that flatter themselves that basically their their lives are good enough. There's no need for a savior. We're okay. Again, I. I'll use myself as an example through these. I used to think that, hey, basically, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not, as, I'm not, I'm not that bad when things are over with. I mean, the Lord's going to count the good things that I've done, and he's going to weigh them against the bad things, and of course, I'm going to come out on the high side here. That's not how I think now, so don't, don't be scary. Fourthly, some make the advantages under which they live an occasion of self-flattery. They flatter themselves that they live in a place where the gospel is powerfully preached and among a religious people where many have been converted and think that it will be easier for them to be saved on that account. I, I don't think this one's as popular today as it once was. I think it was probably very, very popular a few decades ago, and it was very popular in Edwards' day. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was uh, preaching during the First Great Awakening, so it was very popular during that. In other words, what it is saying is, you know, I go to the right church, and I'm listening to the right things, and uh, you know who my daddy is, and you know who my parents are, and you know the family line that I have. I'm going to be good to go. I might not be good to go today, but all of this is going to be taken into account. 
Fifthly, some flatter themselves with their own intentions. They intend to give liberty for a while longer and then to reform. Uh, this is the person that's thinking, okay, I, I, hear, I hear what the Bible's saying. I hear what the preacher is saying. I hear what the Bible teacher is saying. And I'm going to get on about that here one of these days, but I would just like to, uh, I'd just like to put that off just a little while longer. Six, there are some who flatter themselves that they do and have done a great deal for their salvation and therefore hope that they shall obtain it when indeed they neither do what they ought to do nor what they might do in their present state of unregeneracy. And here's something that really scares me. He concludes by saying, nor are they in any likely way to be converted. I'll tell you why I find that so frightening. For several reasons. One is I'm ministering to people, and I've been attempting to minister to people for a number of years who would fall into this category. At least that's where I believe they are. They think that they have done certain things, and they're, they, they really believe that they're making steps towards conversion, true conversion, but it's very clear from talking to them, very clear in watching them and the decisions they make, uh, that they are still outside of a state of grace, yet in their minds they believe that they're making steps in that direction. When in actuality, they're not reading their Bibles, uh, and they're only praying when they're, uh, when they're in some kind of jam. And what really scares me is that last thing that Edward says, that um, nor are they in any likely way to be converted. I'll tell you why that scares me is because Edwards, there are many, there are many top-notch theologians that believe that Jonathan Edwards was the greatest theologian that has ever been raised on American soil. Uh, the, the, he, he was, he, he's no lightweight, and he weighs his words very, very carefully, and his observations are very sharp, and this scares me. They're not likely to be converted. I, that's just a general rule. Seven, some hope their strivings to obtain salvation of themselves. They have a secret imagination that they shall by degrees work in themselves sorrow and repentance of sin and love towards God and Jesus. Their striving is not so much an earnest seeking to God as a striving to do themselves that which is the work of God. What does all that mean? It's hard to listen to this being read and take it in. What does that mean? Uh, basically what Edwards is saying here is that there are some who say, I'm going to make this a personal research project and I'm going to research this until I arrive at the truth. And their course is really a self-effort. And as they do this, they attempt to be the Holy Spirit. They're taking on the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen, the way we come to Jesus is just as we are, just as the song goes. We come just as we are. We, we, we can't change ourselves any more than the Ethiopian can change the color of his skin or the leopard his spots. We come to Jesus in faith. And we trust in what Jesus has done to save us. That's the only way we can come. We can't make this a research project. It's never going to work. We will remain in the same state. And lastly, Edwards says, some sinners flatter themselves that they're already converted. That they're already converted. They sit down and rest in a false hope, persuading themselves that all their sins are pardoned, that God loves them, that they shall go to heaven when they die, and that they need trouble themselves no more. And it's amazing. These are the observations of a powerful preacher who was used uh, mightily by God. He was a man of God who loved Jesus. And these observations were made way back in the 1700s, and uh, I'm thinking about making a pamphlet out of them and passing it out today in the year 2014. 
And it's funny, you know, as I, when I first encountered this, I encountered this, this quote in my study of Psalm 36, and when, when I encountered it and read it uh, for the first time, I thought this would make a great pamphlet. So as I started toying about how to do it, how, how we, we probably should reword some of this, I started toying with the idea, okay, what's, what's going to happen as I pass this out? How are people going to react to this? I have to confess, I, I even thought of some individuals. I thought, boy, I'd like to pass this out to such and such and such and such and such and such. And I thought, ooh, how's that going to go? Let's continue. Verse 3. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. There's lots of things that could be said about verse 3. Uh, really just one quick observation for you. Um, the words that are in the man's heart are not the words that are on his mouth. You see the trouble and deceit there? We could say lots of things about verse 3, but uh, one of the things that we're, we're seeing over and over again in our study of Proverbs on Wednesday nights is that the fool lacks integrity, and it is the wise who is in possession of integrity. In other words, it is a wise man who speaks the real words that are in his or her heart. And it is the fool who tries to cover up what's in their heart and say other things. Uh, that's, that's, there, there's other things in view here in verse 3, but that's one of the things. And, and, you know, here's the bottom line is you never know where you're at with a person. You never know where you're at with a person who lacks integrity. How do you know what they're saying is genuine? How do you know what they're saying is true? You, you never really know where you're at. In verse 4, he plots trouble while on his bed. Uh, at the end, it says he does not reject evil. You know, this idea of plotting trouble while in the bed, it, 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 the psalmist is trying to communicate to us that this is a lifestyle. It's going on all the time. It's taking place from, from morning until night. Uh, and he, he concludes by saying he does not even know how to reject evil. Now, I'm quite thankful that um, we're at the end of all of this. Uh, this is a frightening snapshot uh, of the ways of this world. And I, uh, let's be really clear here. The psalmist is not describing someone who is abnormally wicked here. The psalmist is describing everyone who is outside of a state of grace. Now, some of them might say, well, Rick, how do you know that? I know that because the Apostle Paul uses Psalm 36 in Romans. I really believe in studying Psalm 36 that Paul had Psalm 36 in mind as he was writing Romans 1. And I know he had Psalm 36 in mind when he wrote Romans 3 because he quotes Psalm 36 in Romans 3. And in Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul is not necessarily speaking of people who are abnormally wicked. He's speaking of all people who are outside the grace of Jesus Christ. He's speaking of all people. Now, um, when we get to verse 5, we find an abrupt change. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. You see the abrupt change? There's a radical change between verses 4 and 5. The psalmist goes from this frightening glimpse of the wicked to the excellency of Almighty God. And there's a... There's a uh, there's a word here that's very, very important. It's the word love. Your steadfast love, O Lord. It reaches to the heavens. 
I, 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 th I thought about, I think someday we need to, we need to take a, and invest a, a Lord's Day and, and, and I need to write a sermon specifically on the love of God. Maybe we need to do a series on the love of God because the love of God is so misunderstood. You know, the interesting thing is when the, uh, when, when verse 5 was translated into the Greek, um, into the Greek uh, language, um, this Hebrew word that we translate love in the ESV was translated mercy. And if any of you have a King James translation open or even a New American Standard version open, um, it's going to read mercy there. It's going to say your mercy extends to the heavens. Uh, or thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. The Greek translation is, O Lord, thy mercy is in the heavens. The word mercy is used, not love, mercy. Now, why is that? It's because the translators were wanting to communicate an aspect of this word that can easily be lost. This love that is in verse 5 and it's repeated in verse 7, this love here, uh, is not a sentimental kind of Hallmark greeting card love. It's nothing against Hallmark. It's a gracious love. It's not a love that I love you because your eyes are so lovely and I love you because you make me feel brand new and I love you. It's none of that kind of stuff. On the contrary, uh, there's no because in it at all. God loves us. He loves his people. And this love that he loves his people with is a merciful love. It's a love that's not warranted. I'll tell you why this is so important. I remember uh, at the very beginning of my own conversion, I, I remember studying the Bible. I remember studying the law of God. I came under conviction of sin. I saw that I needed a savior. I came to the conviction that Jesus is the Savior that I need. I'll tell you where I got hung up. I knew I needed saved. I knew I needed a Savior. I knew Jesus was the only Savior. I knew Jesus could save me. I just couldn't for the life of me figure out why he would want to. Why would he want to? You see, if someone could have come alongside of me at that point in time and explained the love of God to me right there, I don't think I'd have had the problem that I had. If someone could have said, well, well, Rick, here's what you need to understand about the love of God. It's a merciful love. God is free to extend it. He is free to withhold it. It's not a deserved love. It's a merciful love. I think this is the reason why a lot of people don't repent. Now, we come to the conclusion that we're sinners. That's easy enough, although not always easy enough, but it should be easy enough. Okay, we're sinners. We need a Savior. Is Jesus willing to save us? Is he truly willing to save us? See, not only do we have to, not only do we have to come to the conclusion that we're sinners, we have, to, we have to be able to see the love of God. It's a gracious love. Once I've come to understand that God's love, his loving hand is extended to me as a merciful hand, well, yes, I'll come to him, but not until then. Until then, we might be tempted to try to earn this love. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. 
your faithfulness to the clouds. The poetry there is very beautiful. You know, one of the reasons people are afraid to fall in love is because uh, they, they realize that it's a risky business. A lot, so many people are untrustworthy. There's a lot of people out there who will not fall in love because they don't want to be hurt. Because there's so much untrustworthiness out there, if you will. And it's interesting that the next thing that the psalmist talks about is the faithfulness of God. He says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. The poetry is beautiful. What does it mean? It means God's steadfast love extends far and wide. We really need to preach that. Because there's people that won't come to God because they just, the same hang-up that I had. We need, to, we need to preach that God's love is far and wide. It's farther and wider than we even know. And we need to preach that He is faithful. His faithfulness is so exalted that it's exalted to the clouds. He's faithful. Don't be afraid to put your trust in Him because His faithfulness is perfect. You're not going to get hurt trusting God. You may get hurt trusting me or someone else in this room, but you're not going to get hurt trusting God. Verse 6, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgment are like the great deep. Again, the poetry is so beautiful. Mountains are stable. A storm can come and go. The mountain stays the same. The storms of controversy can come and go, but the mountain stays the same. Uh, the storms of politics can come and go. You know, politics can, can do this and they can do that, but the mountain stays the same. And it's the same with the righteousness of God. It's stable. It doesn't ebb and flow uh, or change to uh, the, the, the winds of controversy or the winds of politics. And His judgments are like the deep ocean. You know, ocean liners travel across the surface of the ocean every day. And the people in the ocean liner have no idea what's under the surface of the ocean. It's a mystery, isn't it? I mean, we still don't know what's under there. We can't plumb the depths of it, nor can we plumb the depths of God's justice. Man and beast you save. This is a deep reflection. You think about all the various life forms that are on the planet, and God preserves and feeds them all. And Psalm, verse 7, the psalmist returns to the steadfast love of the Lord. You see that? Look with me to verse 7. Oh, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The psalmist begins with the love of God. He ends with the love of God. But he's never left the subject of the love of God. God's love, it, 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 righteousness, justice, goodness, all of these things ebb and flow out of his love. And we're told that his love is precious. The word that's used there is a word that is spoken of to describe something that is very valuable and very rare. This kind of love is very valuable and it's very rare. It's so rare that there's only one place that you can find it. And that's in Christ Jesus. It's the only place. Now, what's going on here? The psalmist is reflecting on the ways of the world. He gets this frightening glimpse of the way of the world. And then there's a, this abrupt change in verse 5. He begins to focus on the goodness of God. And we might ask ourselves, well, why did he change like that? Why, why the abrupt change? I'll tell you what I think is the reason. And I, I think that what comes in the psalm afterwards uh, supports this reason. He's looking at the ways of the world. And he's thankful that he's not there. And he knows that it's only by God's grace that he's not there. 
And this causes him to think about the goodness of God. Do you realize that? If it wasn't for the goodness of God and the grace of God, we would be properly described by verses 1 through 4. And we wouldn't even be frightened by it. That's the most dangerous part. It wouldn't even frighten us. The psalmist is thankful that he's frightened by it. And he's looking to the goodness of God. And he makes another reflection. Verses, uh, the second half of verse 7 uh, through verse 9, he's, he turns his attention to the blessedness of God's people. Notice that. He says, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You know, it's the, the, it's the imagery of a creature who is terrified running to the, uh, the, the, the shelter of its mother. I remember one time mowing my yard, and I remember pushing the lawnmower underneath a pine tree, and as I did so, I saw a small bunny rabbit, terrified, come flying out of there and ran into the neighbor's yard into a big brush pile. And the way it ran into there, it knew exactly where it was going. It was seeking shelter in its home. It was running to its home. It was running to a place that's safe. And what's going on here is the psalmist is saying, oh, the, your people take refuge. This is frightening. Verses 1 through 4 are frightening. But Lord, you are good. And because you are good, we take refuge in you. That's what's going on here. It's going on here with such beautiful language. Uh, such beautiful language. Sinners can take refuge in God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You know, when the frightening ways of this world become frightening to us and we see the steadfast love is merciful, guess what happens? When those conditions are met in our heart, that's when we come to Jesus. See how the psalm points to Jesus? And salvation is not the only thing that is in view here. I couldn't wait to get to this part. This is the best. This is, I don't want to say it's the best part, but look at verse 8. It's speaking of the blessedness of God's people. If you're, if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, it's speaking of you. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Do you know the Hebrew word that's translated delights, the Hebrew word that's behind delights? Everyone in this room knows that word. It's the word Eden, as in garden of Eden. Paradise is what's in view. I, I can't say much about this because I'm like the rest of you. I mean, I don't really comprehend much about this. I don't know what to say about, about this. I, I, um, I, I can only comprehend so much about this. It, it's be, Paul tells us that we can't comprehend it. No eye has seen or the heart of man imagined the things that wait for those who love God. What I can say is that the greatest pleasure that we've ever experienced in this life, the greatest blessing that we've ever experienced, is a poor comparison to what awaits the children of God in the presence of Almighty God. That's really my best effort. My best, I can't think of anything better to say than that. That's pretty good though, isn't it? To try to lock that in your mind. Think of the most precious thing that's ever happened to you, that's ever been done to you, and then magnify it. Because that most precious thing is not, not I'm not trying to take anything away from that precious thing. No, by no means. But when it's compared to the things that await those who have taken refuge in, in God through Christ, 
It's a poor comparison. It is so good that that is a poor comparison. We won't miss any of that stuff. We won't be tempted to look back to any of that stuff. Verse 9, for in you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. You know, God is the source of life. We know that. And in your light do we see light. This verse is actually uh, in the motto, in, in the insignia of the ARP church. Some of you have seen me wear the, the, uh, uh, the, the little thing on the lapel of, my, uh, of some of my suit jackets. It's just this little ARP logo. Uh, you can't really see it very well because the thing is so small, but uh, underneath uh, verse uh, 9 of Psalm 36 is quoted. And it says, in your light do we see light. In your light do we see light. Now, what's going on here? Let's stand back and let's look at what's going on here. The psalmist is observing the culture around him. He's observing the ways of the world. He gets this frightening glimpse of the world. That causes him to, in my opinion, I think what's happening is he's thankful that that's not where he is. He looks to the goodness of God, I think is what's going on here. He looks to the goodness of God. And he's thankful that he is not of that community, but that in God's light, he has seen the light. Just like that old spiritual song goes, he saw, he saw the light, I saw the light. And he's taken refuge in the shelter of God's wings. So he goes from the frightening ways of this world to the blessedness of God, to the blessedness of God's people. And I think that the last thing that he does supports all this because what does he do lastly? He prays for preservation. Verse 10, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Oh, by all means, Lord, please continue us in this way. Thank you for drawing us out of the ways of this world, bringing us into your light. And please, Lord, keep us there. Does that make sense? I think that's what's going on here. It's powerful, isn't it? The more familiar you get with it, the more powerful it becomes. The psalmist is praying for you and I that the Lord will preserve us in the way that he has called us. These prayers have been lifted up by the church historically for centuries and centuries and centuries. We've been prayed for by every generation and God has heard the prayer by every generation and he's hearing the prayer by us this morning. And we are fruit of that prayer. God holds us tightly in his hands and he, if you are in Christ this morning, he is not going to let you go. Isn't that wonderful? Well, I think the application of all this is so obvious that we've covered it as, as we've went. I mean, are you in Christ this morning? If you are, hopefully the ways of the world is frightening to you. And hopefully after studying Psalm 36, the ways of the world will be even more frightening to you. Pray that the Lord will make the ways of the world more frightening to you so that you won't want anything to do with them. So you'll be not even tempted to go that direction. If you're not in Christ this morning, pray that the Lord will make you frightened of this. Pray that he will open up his love and show his love forth uh, to you so that you'll see that it's a refuge. And lastly, let us all pray that the Lord will continue us in this with this great prayer of preservation. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this great psalm. We thank you, O Lord, uh, for your goodness, for your grace this morning, Lord. Uh, what are we to say in response to all of this, Lord? We just say thank you. We praise you. May we praise you with song, Lord. And may we praise you, O Lord, with, uh, with a motivation and a determination, O Lord, to live for you and to surrender our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.